Welcome to the Stillwaters Revival Books reading of Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will. This is the 11th reading in this series. Stillwaters Revival Books makes thousands of classic Puritan and Reformed books and sermons available free and at great discounts in print, audio, and video formats at PuritanDownloads.com. If you would like to join our email list to stay up to date about all the new, free, and discounted Puritan and Reformed resources we make available, please send an email to swrb at swrb.com with the word ADD in the subject line. For more information about the Puritan Publishing Ministry of SWRB, please email us at swrb at swrb.com. And now to our reading of Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will. Section 82 But let us now inquire into the reason why this trope was invented in this passage. It appears absurd, says the diatribe, that God, who is not only just but also good, should be said to have hardened the heart of a man, in order that, by his iniquity, he might show forth his own power. The same also occurred to Origen, who confesses that the occasion of becoming hardened was given of God, but throws all the fault upon Pharaoh. He has, moreover, made a remark upon that which the Lord saith, for this very purpose have I raised thee up. He does not say, he observes, for this very purpose I have made thee. Otherwise, Pharaoh could not have been wicked. If God had made him such an one as he was, for God beheld all his works, and they were, quote, very good. Thus the diatribe. It appears then that one of the principal causes why the words of Moses and of Paul are not received is their absurdity. But against what article of faith does that absurdity militate? Or who is offended at it? It is human reason that is offended. Who, being blind, deaf, impious, and sacrilegious in all the words and works of God is, in the case of this passage, introduced as a judge of the words and works of God. According to the same argument of absurdity, you will deny all the articles of faith, because it is of all things the most absurd, and, as Paul saith, foolishness to the Gentiles, and a stumbling block to the Jews, that God should be man, the son of a virgin, crucified and sitting at the right hand of his father it is I say absurd to believe such things therefore let us invent some tropes with the Arians and say that Christ is not truly God let us invent some tropes with the Manichees and say that he is not truly man but a phantom introduced by means of a virgin, or a reflection conveyed by glass, which fell and was crucified. And in this way we shall handle the scriptures to excellent purpose indeed. After all, then, the tropes amount to nothing, nor is the absurdity avoided. For it still remains absurd, according to the judgment of reason, that God who is just and good should exact of free will impossibilities and that when free will cannot will good and of necessity serve sin that sin should yet be laid to its charge and that moreover when he does not give the spirit he should nevertheless act so severely and unmercifully as to harden or permit to become hardened these things reason will say are not becoming a god good and merciful 
Thus, they too far exceed her capacity, nor can she so bring herself into subjection as to believe and judge that the God who does such things is good. But setting aside faith, she wants to feel out and see and comprehend how he can be good and not cruel. But she will comprehend that when this shall be said of God, he hardens no one, he damns no one, but he has mercy upon all, he saves all, and he so utterly destroyed hell that no future punishment need be dreaded. It is thus that reason blusters and contends in attempting to clear God and to defend him as just and good. But faith and the Spirit judge otherwise, who believe that God would be good, even though he should destroy all men. And to what profit is it to weary ourselves with all these reasonings, in order that we might throw the fault of hardening upon free will? Let all the free will in the world do all it can with all its powers, and yet it never will give one proof, either that it can avoid being hardened where God gives not his spirit, or merit mercy where it is left to its own powers. And what does it signify whether it be hardened or deserve being hardened, if the hardening be of necessity? as long as it remains in that impotency in which, according to the testimony of the diatribe, it cannot will good. Since, therefore, the absurdity is not taken out of the way by these tropes, or, if it be taken out of the way, greater absurdities still are introduced in their stead, and all things are ascribed unto free will. Away with such useless and seducing tropes! And let us cleave close to the pure and simple word of God. Section 83 As to the other point, that those things which God has made are very good, and that God did not say, For this purpose have I made thee, but for this purpose have I raised thee up. I observe, first of all, that this, Genesis 1 concerning the works of God being very good was said before the fall of man but it is recorded directly after in Genesis 3 how man became evil when God departed from him and left him to himself and from this one man thus corrupt all the wicked were born and Pharaoh also as Paul saith, we were all by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Ephesians 2, 3 Therefore God made Pharaoh wicked, that is, from a wicked and corrupt seed, as he saith in the Proverbs of Solomon 16, 4 God hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. That is, not by creating evil in them, but by forming them out of a corrupt seed and ruling over them. This, therefore, is not a just conclusion. God made man wicked, therefore he is not wicked. For how can he not be wicked from a wicked seed? As Psalm 51.5 saith, Behold, I was conceived in sin. And Job 14.4, Who can make that clean which is conceived from unclean seed? For although God did not make us sin, yet he ceases not to form and multiply that nature which from the spirit being withdrawn is defiled by sin. And, as it is, when a carpenter makes statues of corrupt wood, so such as the nature is, such are the men made, when God creates and forms them out of that nature. 
again, if you understand the words, they were very good, as referring to the works of God after the fall, you will be pleased to observe that this was said not with reference to us, but with reference to God. For it is not said, man saw all things that God had made, and behold, that they were very good. Many things seem very good unto God, and are very good, which seems unto us very evil, and are considered to be very evil. Thus afflictions, evils, errors, hells, nay, all the very best works of God are in the sight of the world very evil and even damnable. What is better than Christ and the gospel? But what is more execrated by the world? And therefore, how those things are good in the sight of God, which are evil in our sight, is known only unto God and unto those who see with the eyes of God, that is, who have the Holy Spirit. But then there is no need of argumentation so close as this. The preceding answer is sufficient. Section 84 But here, perhaps, it will be asked, How can God be said to work evil in us in the same way as is said to harden us? to give us up to our own desires, to cause us to err. We ought indeed to be content with the word of God, and simply to believe what that saith, seeing that the works of God are utterly unspeakable. But, however, in compliance with reason, that is, human foolery, I will just act the fool and the stupid fellow for once and try, by a little babbling, if I can produce any effect upon her. Thus, first then, both reason and the diatribe grant that God works all in all, and that without him nothing is either done or effective, because he is omnipotent, and because therefore all things come under his omnipotence as Paul saith to the Ephesians. Now then, Satan and man being fallen and left of God cannot will good. That is, those things which please God or which God wills, but are ever turned the way of their own desires, so that they cannot but seek their own. This, therefore, their will and nature so turned from God cannot be a nothing, nor are Satan and the wicked man a nothing, nor are the nature and the will which they have a nothing, although it be a nature corrupt and averse. That remnant of nature, therefore, in Satan and the wicked man of which we speak, as being creature and work of God, is none, not less subject to the divine omnipotence and action than all the rest of the creatures and works of God. Since, therefore, God moves and does all in all, he necessarily moves and does all in Satan and the wicked man as well. But he so does all in them as they themselves are, and as he finds them, that is, as they are themselves averse and evil, being carried along by that motion of the divine omnipotence, they cannot but do what is averse and evil. Just as it is with a man driving a horse lame on one foot or lame on two feet, he drives him just so as the horse himself is. That is, the horse moves badly. But what can the man do? He is driving along this kind of horse together with sound horses. He indeed goes badly and the rest well. But 
It cannot be otherwise unless the horse be made sound. Here then you see that when God works in and by evil men, the evils themselves are inwrought, but yet God cannot do evil, although he thus works the evils by evil men, because being good himself, he cannot do evil, but he uses evil instruments, which cannot escape the sway and motion of his omnipotence. The fault, therefore, is in the instruments, which God allows not to remain actionless, seeing that the evils are done as God himself moves, just in the same manner as a carpenter would cut badly with a saw-edged or broken-edged axe. Hence it is that the wicked man cannot but always err and sin, because being carried along by the motion of the divine omnipotence, he is not permitted to remain motionless, but must will, desire, and act according to his nature. All this is fixed certainty if we believe that God is omnipotent. It is, moreover, as certain that the wicked man is the creature of God, though being averse and left to himself without the Spirit of God, he cannot will or do good. For the omnipotence of God makes it that the wicked man cannot evade the motion and action of God, but being of necessity subject to it, he yields. Though his corruption and aversion to God make him that he cannot be carried along and moved unto good. God cannot suspend his omnipotence on account of his aversion, nor can the wicked man change his aversion. Wherefore, it is that he must continue of necessity to sin and err until he be amended by the Spirit of God. Meanwhile, in all these, Satan goes on to reign in peace and keeps his palace undisturbed under this motion of the divine omnipotence. Section 85 But now follows the act itself of hardening, which is thus. The wicked man, as we have said, like his prince Satan, is turned totally the way of selfishness and his own. He seeks not God, nor cares for the things of God. He seeks his own riches, glory, his own doings, his own kingdom, and wills only to enjoy them in peace. And if anyone oppose him, or wish to diminish any of these things with the same aversion to God under which he seeks these, with the same is he moved, enraged, and roused to indignation against his adversary. And he is as much unable to overcome this rage as he is to overcome his desire of self-seeking. And he can no more avoid this seeking than, than he can avoid his own existence. And this he cannot do as being the creature of God, though a corrupt one. The same is that fury of the world against the gospel of God. For by the gospel comes that stronger than he, who overcomes the quiet possessor of the palace, and condemns those desires of glory, riches, and wisdom, of self-righteousness, and of all things in which he trusts. This very irritation of the wicked when God speaks and acts contrary to what they willed is their hardening and their galling weight. For as they are in this state of aversion from the very corruption of nature, so they become more and more averse and worse and worse. As this aversion is opposed or turned out of its way. And thus, when God threatened to take away from the wicked Pharaoh his power, he irritated and aggravated him and hardened his heart the more. The more he came to him with his word by Moses, making known his intention to take away his kingdom 
and to deliver his own people from his power because he did not give him his spirit within but permitted Pharaoh's wicked corruption under the dominion of Satan to grow angry to swell with pride to burn with rage and to go on still in a certain secure contempt section 86 let no one think therefore that God where he is said to harden or to work evil in us for to harden is to do evil so does the evil as though he created the evil in us anew in the same way as a malignant liquor seller being himself bad would pour poison into or mix it up in a vessel that was not bad where the vessel itself did nothing but receive or passively accomplish the purpose of the malignity of the poison mixer for when people hear it said by us that God works in us both good and evil and that we from mere necessity passively submit to the working of God they seem to imagine that a man who is good or not evil himself is passive while God works evil in him not rightly considering that God is far from being inactive in all his creatures and never suffers any one of them to keep holiday but whoever wishes to understand these things let him think thus that God works evil in us that is by us not from the fault of God but from the fault of evil within us that is as we are evil by nature God who is truly good carrying us along by his own action according to the nature of his omnipotence cannot do otherwise than do evil by us as instruments though he himself be good though by his wisdom he overrules that evil well to his own glory and to our salvation thus God finding the will of Satan evil not creating it so but leaving it while Satan sinningly commits the evil carries it along by his working and moves it which way he will though that will ceases not to be evil by the motion of God in this same way that David spoke concerning Shimei let him curse for God hath bidden him to curse David 2 Samuel 16:10. how could God bid to curse an action so evil and virulent there was nowhere an external precept to that effect David therefore looks to this the omnipotent God saith and it is done that is he does all things by his external word wherefore here the divine action and omnipotence the good God himself carries along the will of Shimei already evil together with all his members and before incensed against David and while David is thus opportunely situated and deserving such blasphemy commands the blasphemy that is by his word which is his act that is the motion of his action by this evil and blaspheming instrument section 87 it is thus God hardens Pharaoh he presents to his impious and evil will his word and his work which that will hates that is by its engendered and natural corruption and thus while God does not change his spirit that will within but goes on presenting and enforcing while Pharaoh considering his own resources his riches and his power trusts to them from the same naturally evil inclination 
it come to pass that being inflated and uplifted by the imagination of his own greatness on the one hand and swollen to a proud contempt of Moses coming in all humility with the unostentatious word of God on the other he becomes hardened and then the more and more irritated and chafed the more Moses advances and threatens whereas this his evil will would not of itself have been moved and or hardened at all but as the omnipotent agent moved it by that by that his inevitable motion it must of necessity will one way or the other and thus as soon as he presented to it outwardly that which naturally irritated and offended it thus the will then it was that Pharaoh could not avoid becoming hardened even as he could not avoid the action of divine omnipotence and the aversion or enmity of his own will wherefore the hardening of Pharaoh's heart by God is wrought thus God presents outwardly to his enmity that which he naturally hates and then he ceases not to move within by his omnipotent motion the evil will which he there finds he from the enmity of his will cannot but hate that which is contrary to him and trust to his own powers and that so obstinately that he can neither hear nor feel but is carried away in possession of Satan like a madman or a fury if I have brought these things home with convincing persuasion the victory in this point is mine and having exploded the tropes and glosses of men I understand the words of God simply so that there is no necessity for clearing God or accusing him of iniquity for when he saith I will harden the heart of Pharaoh he speaks simply as though he should say I will so work that the heart of Pharaoh shall be hardened or by my operation in working the heart of Pharaoh shall be hardened and how this was to be done we have heard that is by my general motion I will so move his very evil will that he shall go on in his course and lust of willing nor will I cease to move it nor can I do otherwise I will nevertheless present him, present to him my word and work against which that evil impetus will run for he being evil cannot but will evil while I move him by the power of my omnipotence thus God with the greatest certainty knew and with the greatest certainty declared that Pharaoh would be hardened because he with the greatest certainty knew that the will of Pharaoh could neither resist the motion of his omnipotence nor put away his own enmity nor receive its adversary Moses and that as the evil will still remained he must of necessity become worse more hardened and more proud while by his course and impetus trusting his own powers he ran against that which he would not receive and which he despised here therefore you see it is confirmed even by this very scripture that free will can do nothing but evil while God who is not deceived from ignorance nor lies from iniquity so surely promises the hardening of Pharaoh because he was certain that an evil will could will nothing but evil and that as the good which is hated was presented to it it could not but wax worse and worse it now then remains for section 88 that perhaps 
someone may ask, Why then does God cease from that motion of his omnipotence, by which the will of the wicked is moved to go on in evil and to become worse? I answer, This is to wish that God, for the sake of the wicked, would cease to be God. For this you really desire, when you desire his power in action to cease, that is, that he should cease to be good, lest the wicked should become worse. Again, it may be asked, why does he not then change in his motion those evil wills which he moves? This belongs to those secrets of majesty where his judgments are past finding out. Nor is it ours to search into, but to adore these mysteries. If flesh and blood here take offense and murmur, let it murmur. But it will be just where it was before. God is not on that account changed. And if numbers of the wicked be offended and go away, yet the elect shall remain. The same answer will be given to those who ask, Why did he permit Adam to fall? And why did he make all of us to be infected with the same sin, when he might have kept him and might have created us from some other seed, or might first have cleansed that before he created us from it? God is that being for whose will no cause or reason is to be assigned as a rule or standard by which it acts, seeing that nothing is superior or equal to it, but it is itself the rule of all things. For if it acted by any rule or standard or from any cause or reason, it would be no longer the will of God. Wherefore, what God wills is not therefore right because he ought or ever was bound so to will. But on the contrary, what takes place is therefore right because he so wills. A cause and a reason are assigned for the will of the creature, but not for the will of the creator unless you set up over him another creator. Section 89 By these arguments I presume the trope-inventing diatribe, together with its trope, are sufficiently confronted and confuted. Let us, however, come to the text itself for the purpose of seeing what agreement there is between the text and the trope. For it is the way with all those who elude arguments by means of tropes to hold the text itself in sovereign contempt and to aim only at picking out a certain term and twisting and crucifying it upon the cross of their own opinion without paying any regard whatever, either to circumstance, to consequence, to precedence, or to intention or object of the author. Thus, the diatribe in this passage, utterly disregarding the intention of Moses and the scope of his words, tears out of the text this term, I will harden, and makes of it just what it will, according to its own lust, not at all considering whether that can be again inserted so as to agree and square with the body of the text. And this is the reason why the scripture was not sufficiently clear to those most received and most learned men of so many ages. And no wonder, for even the sun itself would not shine if it should be assailed by such arts as these. But to say nothing about that, which I have already proved from the scriptures, that Pharaoh cannot rightly be said to be hardened, because being born with by the long-suffering of God, he was not immediately punished, 
seeing that he was punished by so many plagues. If hardening be bearing with divine long-suffering and not immediately punishing, what need was there that God should so many times promise that he would then harden the heart of Pharaoh when the signs should be wrought, who now, before those signs were wrought, and before that hardening was such that being inflated with his success, prosperity, and wealth, and being born with by the divine long-suffering and not punished, inflicted so many evils on the children of Israel. You see, therefore, that this trope of yours makes not at all to the purpose in this passage seeing that it applies generally unto all as sinning because they are born with the divine long-suffering. And thus, we shall be compelled to say that all are hardened, seeing that there is no one who does not sin, and that no one sins but he who is born with by the divine long-suffering. Wherefore, this hardening of Pharaoh is another hardening, independent of that general hardening as, as produced by the long-suffering of the divine goodness. Section 90. The more immediate design of Moses, then, is to announce not so much the hardening of Pharaoh as the veracity and mercy of God, that is, that the children of Israel might not distrust the promise of God, wherein he promised that he would deliver them. Exodus 6.1 And since this was a matter of the greatest moment, he foretells them the difficulty, that they might not fall away from their faith, knowing that all those things which were foretold must be accomplished in order in which he who made the promise had arranged them. As if he had said, I will deliver you indeed, but you will with difficulty believe it, because Pharaoh will so resist and put off the deliverance. Nevertheless, believe ye, for the whole of his putting off shall, by my way of operation, only be the means of my working the more and greater miracles to your confirmation in faith and to the display of my power that henceforth ye might the more steadily believe me upon all other occasions in the same way does christ also act when at the last supper he promises his disciples a kingdom he foretells them numberless difficulties such as his own death and their many tribulations to the intent that when it should come to pass they might afterwards the more steadily believe. And Moses by no means obscurely sets forth this meaning where he saith, But Pharaoh shall not send you away that many wonders might be wrought in Egypt. And again, for this purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show in thee my power, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Exodus 9.16 and Romans 9.17 Here you see that Pharaoh was for this purpose hardened, that he might resist God and put off the redemption in order that there might be an occasion given for the working of signs and for the display of the power of God that he might be declared and believed on throughout all the earth. And what is this but showing that all these things were said and done to confirm faith and to comfort the weak that they might afterwards freely believe in God as true, faithful, powerful, and merciful just as though he had spoken to them in the kindest manner as to little children and had said, Be not terrified at the hardness of Pharaoh, 
For I work that very hardness myself, and I who deliver you have it in mine own hand. I will only use it that I may thereby work many signs and declare my majesty for the furtherance of your faith. And this is the reason why Moses generally after each plague repeats, And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened so that he would not let the people go. And the Lord had spoken. Exodus seven thirteen twenty two. Exodus eight fifteen and thirty two, and Exodus nine twelve, etc. What is the intent of this? As the Lord had spoken, but that the Lord might appear true, who had foretold that he should be hardened. Now, if there had been any veritability or liberty of will in Pharaoh, which could turn either way, God could not with such certainty have foretold this hardening. But as he promised, who could neither be deceived nor lie, it of certainty and of necessity came to pass that he was hardened which could not have taken place had not the hardening been totally apart from the power of man and in the power of God alone. In the same manner, as I said before, from God being certain that he should not admit the general operation of his omnipotence in Pharaoh or on Pharaoh's account, nay, that he could not admit it. Moreover, God was equally certain that the will of Pharaoh, being naturally evil and averse, could not consent to the word and work of God, which was contrary to it, and that, therefore, while the impetus of willing was preserved in Pharaoh by the omnipotence of God, and while the hated word and work was continually set before his eyes without, without, Nothing else could take place in Pharaoh but offense and the hardening of his heart. For if God had then omitted the action of his omnipotence in Pharaoh when he set before him the word of Moses, which he hated, and the will of Pharaoh might be supposed to have acted alone by its own power, then perhaps there might have been room for a discussion which way it had power to turn. But now, since it was led on and carried away by its own willing, no violence was done to its will because it was not forced against its will but was carried along by the natural operation of God to will naturally just as it was by nature that is, evil. And therefore, it could not but run against the word and thus become hardened. Hence we see that this passage makes most forcibly against free will. And in this way, God who promised could not lie. And if he could not lie, then Pharaoh could not but be hardened. Section 91 But let us also look into Paul who takes up this passage of Moses Romans 9 How miserably is the diatribe tortured with that part of the scripture lest it should lose its hold of free will it puts on every shape at one time it says that there is a necessity of the consequence but not a necessity of the thing consequent. At another, that there is an ordinary will or will of the sign which may be resisted and a will of the decree which cannot be resisted. At another, that those passages adduced from Paul do not contend for, do not speak about, the salvation of man. In one place it says that the prescience of God 
does not impose necessity in another, that it does not impose necessity. Again, in another place it asserts, asserts that grace prevents the will that it might will, and then, and then attends it as it proceeds and brings it to a happy issue. Here it states that the first cause does all things itself and directly afterwards that it acts by second causes, remaining itself inactive. By these and the like sportings without words, it does nothing but fill up its time, and at the same time obscure the subject point from our sight, drawing us aside to something else. So stupid and doltish does it imagine us to be that it thinks we feel no more interested in the cause than it feels itself. Or, as little children, when fearing the rod or at play, cover their eyes with their hands and think that as they see nobody themselves, nobody sees them. So the diatribe not only not being able to endure the brightness, nay, the lightning, of the most clear scriptures pretending by every kind of maneuver that it does not see which is in truth the case wishes to persuade us that our eyes are also covered so that we cannot see but all these maneuvers are but evidences of a convicted mind rashly struggling against the invincible truth that figment about, quote, the necessity of the consequence, but not the necessity of the thing consequent, has been before refuted. Let then Erasmus event, invent and invent again, cavil and cavil again, as much as he will. If God foreknew that Judas would be a traitor, Judas became a traitor of necessity. Nor was it in the power of Judas nor any other creature to alter it or to change that will. Though he did what he did willingly, not by compulsion, for that willing of his was, of his, was his own work, which God, by the motion of his omnipotence, moved on into action as he does everything else. God does not lie, nor is he deceived. This is a truth evident and invincible. There are no obscure or ambiguous words here, even though all the most learned men of all ages should be so blinded as to think and say to the contrary. How much soever, therefore, you may turn your back on it, yet the convicted conscience of yourself and all men is compelled to, the, to confess that if God be not deceived in that which he foreknows, that which he foreknows must of necessity take place. If it were not so, who could believe his promises? Who would fear his threatenings if what he promised or threatened did not of necessity take place? Or how could he promise or threaten if his prescience could not be deceived or hindered by our mutability? Or rather, how could he promise or threaten if his prescience could be deceived or hindered by our mutability. This all-clear light of certain truth manifestly stops the mouths of all, puts an end to all questions, and forever settles the victory over all evasive subtleties. We know indeed that the prescience of man is fallible. We know that an eclipse does not therefore take place because it is foreknown, but that it is therefore foreknown because it is to take place. But what have we to do with this prescience? We are disputing about the prescience of God. And if you do not ascribe to this, 
the necessity of the consequent foreknown, you take away faith and the fear of God. You destroy the force of all the divine promises and threatenings, and thus deny divinity itself. But, however, the diatribe itself, after having held out for a long time and tried all things, and being pressed hard by the force of truth, at last confesses my sentiments, saying, Section 92 The question concerning the will and predestination of God is somewhat difficult, for God wills those same things which he foreknows, and this is the substance of what Paul subjoins. Who hath resisted his will? If he have mercy on whom he will, and harden whom he will. For if there were a king who could effect whatever he chose, and no one could resist him, he would be said to do whatever he willed. So the will of God, as it is, the principal cause of all things which take place seems to impose a necessity on our will. Thus says the diatribe. At last, then, I give thanks to God for a sound sentence in the diatribe, where now then is free will. But again, this slippery eel is twisted aside in a moment, saying, but Paul does not explain this point. He only rebukes the disputer. Who art thou, O man, that repliest against God? Romans 9.20 O notable evasion! Is this the way to handle the Holy Scriptures? Thus to make a declaration upon one, one's own authority and out of one's own brain without a scripture, without a miracle, nay, to corrupt the most clear words of God. What? Does not Paul explain that point? What does he then? What does he then? He only rebukes the disputer, says the diatribe, and is not that rebuke the most complete explanation? For what was inquired into by that question concerning the will of God? Was it not this, whether or not it imposed a necessity on our will? Paul then answers that it is thus. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will, on whom he will, he hardeneth. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Showeth mercy. Romans 9, 15-16 and 18. Moreover, not content with this explanation, he introduces those who murmur against this explanation in their defense of free will, and prate that there is no merit allowed, that we are damned, when the fault is not our own, and the like, and stops their murmuring and indignation, saying, Thou wilt say then, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Romans 9.19 Do you not see that this is addressed to those who hearing that the will of God imposes necessity on us, say, Why doth ye yet find fault? That is, why does God thus insist, thus urge, thus exact, thus find fault? Why does he accuse, why does he reprove, as though we men could do what he requires if he would, if we would? He has no just cause for thus finding fault. Let him rather accuse his own will. Let him find fault with that. Let him press his requirement upon that. For who hath resisted his will? Who can obtain mercy if he wills not? 
you can become softened if he wills to harden is it not in our power to change his will much less to resist it no where he wills us to be hardened by that will therefore we are compelled to be hardened whether we will or no if Paul had not explained this question and had not stated to a certainty that necessity is imposed on us by the prescience of God what need was there for his introducing the murmurers and complainers saying that his will cannot be resisted for who would have murmured or been indignant if he had not found necessity to be stated Paul's words are not ambiguous where he speaks of resisting the will of God is there anything ambiguous in what resisting is or what his will is is it at all ambiguous concerning what he is speaking when he speaks concerning the will of God let the myriads of the most approved doctors be blind let them pretend if they will that the scriptures are not quite clear and that they tremble at a difficult question we have words the most clear which plainly speak thus he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and on whom he will hardeneth and also thou wilt say to me then why doth he yet complain for who hath resisted his will the question therefore is not difficult nay nothing can be more plain to common sense than that this conclusion is certain stable and true if it is pre-established from scriptures that God neither errs nor is deceived then whatever God foreknows must of necessity take place it would be a difficult question indeed nay an impossibility to i confess if you should attempt to establish both the prescience of god and the free will of man for what could be more difficult nay a greater impossibility than to attempt to prove that contradiction do not that that contradictions do not clash or that a number may at the same time be both nine and ten there is no difficulty on our side of the question but it is sought for and introduced just as ambiguity and obscurity are sought for and violently introduced into the scriptures the apostle therefore restrains the impious who are offended at these most clear words by letting them know that the divine will is accomplished by necessity in us and by letting them know also that it is defined to a certainty that they have nothing of liberty or free will left but that all things depend upon the will of God alone but he restrains them in this way by commanding them to be silent and to revere the majesty of the divine power and will over which we have no control but which has over us a full control to do whatever it will and yet it does us no injury seeing that it is not indebted to us is never received anything from us it never promised us anything but what itself pleased and willed the puritan hard drive and the free online puritan hard drive videos are available at puritandownloads.com along with many other puritan and reformed books for as little as 99 cents each Hello, and welcome to this introductory video for the Puritan Hard Drive by Stillwater's Revival Books. You will soon see why the Puritan Hard Drive is a technological revolution in Puritan, Reformation, and Covenanter studies. 
For over 25 years, Stillwater's Revival Books has provided the worldwide Christian community with the finest in Puritan and Reformation resources, including classic and contemporary printed works, inspirational sermons, audiobooks, and videos. In recent years, our collection of great Christian works has more than doubled, growing to a library that would occupy nearly 130 CDs. The Puritan Hard Drive is a tremendous library of over 12,500 Christian resources on an external hard drive that fits easily in your pocket or purse. It features the works of more than 800 classic and contemporary authors, including John Bunyan, Matthew Henry, Jonathan Edwards, Thomas Manton, Samuel Rutherford, and Charles Spurgeon. Timeless works like the English Hexapla, Fox's Book of Martyrs, Sketches of the Covenanters, and from the Puritan Divines, the complete 34-volume set of the Puritan Fast Sermons. Many of these books are rare and classic titles unavailable anywhere else. Over 25 years in the making, the Puritan hard drive is simply the most extensive Christian collection ever released. The Puritan hard drive comprises more than 12,500 Puritan and Reformation resources, over half a million pages of great Christian books, more than 10,000 sermons and audio books in MP3 format, providing years of listening enjoyment, over 70 videos, all in all, a library of thousands of exceptional works accessible and affordable to everyone. Included on the Puritan hard drive is a custom search engine that makes it easy to find, browse, and organize the resources in your library, and much easier than trying to wade through a typical file directory on your computer. Connect the Puritan hard drive to any available USB port on your PC or Mac. The drive is self-contained, so there's no software to install or configure. Within moments, you can begin exploring the library by running the custom search interface. It's also a knowledge base with information about each work, including the author, title, description, keywords, and subject category. For you techies, this database contains over 4.5 million records of information. For all of us, that means we have an extremely powerful search and study tool. A list of all resources on the Puritan hard drive is available for viewing at any time. Here we see that the list of print materials contains over 2,100 works. This view is ideal for browsing all documents or media files in alphabetical order, by title or by author. The list is rather long. So using the search function of the knowledge base is the easiest way of finding resources of interest to you. For example, let's say that my pastor recommended a book by James Henley Thornwell. I can search the knowledge base by author by typing his name in this field or by selecting it from the complete list of nearly 800 authors provided at the click of a button. Clicking the search button executes the search and immediately returns a list of all resources by this author. In this case, I've quickly found the book that was recommended to me. Clicking on the green icon opens the resource, allowing me to begin my reading. Further details about any resource can be found by clicking on the book cover icon, which opens the resource detail page. From here, I can browse the details of this work. I can add and save my own notes about it and open the resource for reading, listening, or viewing. Your search capabilities don't end there. The majority of the rare, classic works on the Puritan hard drive now contain an embedded index. This means that the actual text of these resources is now fully searchable for the first time in history. Enter a search term in Adobe Acrobat Reader. In this case, a search for the word scripture yields instant results. Having searchable text also makes it possible to highlight, copy, and paste the text into another document, such as a sermon 
a lesson plan, or a school paper. Less time spent on research means more time for reading, studying, and appreciating the resources in your library. Just another reason why the Puritan hard drive is a technological revolution in Puritan, Reformation, and Covenanter studies. Thank you for watching this introduction to the Puritan Hard Drive by Stillwater's Revival Books, serving Christians worldwide for over 25 years. Join us in our other videos as we demonstrate even more features and functionality of the Puritan Hard Drive. For more information, visit us on the web at puritandownloads.com. Until then, be well and God bless.